here he is again, John the Baptizer. He's forever popping up in the lectionary during Advent and Christmas. And once again at the baptism of the Lord, and that's what we're celebrating this evening. We've tucked away our Advent wreath and brought back the baptismal font. There are reports that John has been eating locusts, dressing in strange clothes, shouting and prophesying, and apparently he's still doing all of that. His message is prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare for God's arrival. Such important words. We all do things to prepare for guests. Before our son Bob, his wife Tatiana, and Stella come for Christmas, I prepare. I buy Oatly oat milk. <laughs> Gluten-free cherry granola. Everything organic, and of course I shop at Whole Foods. I prepare for their coming with healthy food because that's important to them. And there's a little smiling going on in the kitchen. God was calling God's John was calling God's people to prepare for the Messiah's arrival, to make the pathway of their lives as smooth and straight as they could, to clean things up. He's inviting them to repent. You remember that word? to turn around and go in a new direction and enter a whole new dimension of life. He's inviting them to be baptized. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. The words have been sung through the centuries. Handel in the 18th century, Godspell in the 80s, Michael W. Smith in the 21st century. Prepare the way of the Lord. The words have been sung through the centuries, and John was calling his listeners to prepare so that they could be ready for the next step. When the Messiah would arrive, baptize them and give them the Holy Spirit. Immerse them, plunge them into the Spirit, as some translations say. And lots of the folks listening to John the Baptist did begin to repair through the baptism of repentance in the Jordan. John spoke as he baptized, just wait, you've just heard this, just wait until Messiah Jesus arrives. He'll get the job done, changing lives, making things right. You'll have the chance to turn in your old life for a kingdom life, as Eugene Peterson interprets this passage. John has been waiting his whole life for his cousin Jesus to appear, but when he finally does, John's surprised. He's not surprised because Jesus shows up. He's been expecting that for some time, but surprised at how Jesus was behaving. John expected Messiah Jesus to be one thing, but he was quite another. John was calling hopeless people weary of sin, to wade into the muddy water of the Jordan, to submit to a baptism that would fulfill their desire, to wash them clean. Transformation was what they were after. 
but it didn't seem quite right. It seemed kind of backwards to John. He expected Jesus to take charge, to step up, and at the very least, baptize him, for goodness sake. The people who threw their sandals on the shores of the Jordan and waited to be baptized by John had had no personal experience with the Holy Spirit. And this is what John had been talking about. They were Jewish, so they knew that in their scriptures, the Spirit of God came upon people for specific tasks to do certain things. But the words, Holy Spirit, excuse me, Holy Spirit, were used only three times in the Old Testament. And for 400 years, there had been no prophet, no moving of the Spirit, nothing remarkable reported. But then, Jesus came on the scene, and it seemed as though Jesus didn't need to repent. Matthew's account tells us that Jesus insisted that he be baptized by John for the purpose of fulfilling all righteousness, whatever that might mean. N.T. Wright does help us understand with his transla translation. Jesus said in explaining his baptism, this is how it's got to be right now. This is the right way for us to complete God's whole saving plan. I'm going to read that just one more time. Jesus said in explaining his baptism, this is how it's got to be right now. This is the right way for us to complete God's whole saving plan. To complete the saving plan that had been laid out before the foundation of the world, Jesus first had to submit to the ritual of baptism. So I imagine he placed his sandals on the muddy bank alongside the rest and waited in line. And then he made his way into the muddy Jordan. And again, from N.T. Wright's translation of Mark 1, Jesus was baptized by John in the river Jordan. And I added this, dare I, if it's N.T. Wright, but not for forgiveness from sins, but to cooperate with the Father's plan. That very moment, as he was getting out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, coming down like a dove lighting onto him. And then there came a voice out of the heavens, you are my wonderful son. You make me very glad. The complete saving plan involved the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that moment, we are let in on the source of power behind all of Jesus' future words and actions. A symbolic act of going down into the water and coming up again becomes much more. It becomes sacramental as early as the first or second century, meaning that right there in the water, God's spirit was actually doing something. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, brothers and sisters, when the heavens open and the Holy Spirit comes. 
And this mystery continues and has become a critical part of historic Christianity. The Holy Spirit is involved at the font in baptism. As the priest dips the paschal candle into the water, she says these words, sanctify this water, we pray you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that those who are here baptized may continue forever in the risen life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Risen life. And the Holy Spirit is present in these words that are spoken at the altar, at the table. Sanctify these gifts by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. And thirdly, through the voice of the Father speaking, you are my beloved. And T. Wright says it this way, the love of God is given as we hear over and over his words of love, his words of life. These are holy moments, and they make our gatherings here on Saturdays in Jesus' name completely different from the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or the PTA or a knitting group or even a self-help group. God comes to us as he has promised. At times, we're very aware of his presence, and sometimes, not so much. But whether we are aware or not, he is present with us. God, through his son Jesus, has promised to be here. And we certainly don't want to miss those special moments when our spirits do sense that he's here his manifest presence. We celebrate these moments tonight. As I said before, this threefold experience would be the foundation of Jesus' life and ministry and the life and ministry of us who follow him. Repent and be baptized. Be anointed and fully welcome the Holy Spirit. Hear the loving voice of God spoken over you. This is to be the experience of every believer through the ages as they meet together. In an interview for the Wittenberg Door, does anybody know what that was? Oh, a handful. <laughs> Most of you are too young. I recommend it if you can scrounge around and find some of the old copies. Uh, but years ago, Garrison Keeler, another old word, you know, he said this. I love this quote. You've probably heard me say it before. We don't go to church to hear lectures on ethical behavior. We go to look at the mysteries. And all the substitutes for communion with God are not, not worth anyone's time. If you can't go to church and for at least one moment be given transcendence, if you can't go to church and pass briefly from this life into the next, then I can't see why anyone should go. Just a brief moment of transcendence causes you to come out of church a changed person. Alleluia. So first, if Jesus then, 
needed to be baptized. This is the baptism of the Lord, the feast we are celebrating tonight. If he needed to be baptized, we do too. Our Anglican tradition is committed to the necessity of baptism. When a priest baptizes an infant, a child, or an adult in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, God is reaching out to the one baptized to accept them and bring them into a new relationship with God and with a community of believers. The priest then anoints the one baptized with oil and speaks these words over them. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Those words are extremely important to me. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. For a baby or young child, baptism initiates a life in God, a beginning spark of the Holy Spirit life that will be actualized when the child confirms by an act of their will what was begun at their baptism, that Jesus is their Savior and Lord. Eugene Peterson expresses what happens in this way. John the baptizer speaks, and you heard it read before, the real action comes next. The star in this drama, to whom I'm a mere stagehand, will change your life. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. His baptism, a holy baptism by the Holy Spirit, will change you from the inside out, will place you in a whole new dimension. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and we need to be baptized too to receive his righteous life. Secondly, if Jesus needed to be anointed by the Holy Spirit as the dove descended upon him to fill him with the Holy Ghost power, then we need that anointing too. In the first part of Acts 19, uh, read tonight, some Ephesians had repented and believed, apparently, having been evangelized by some of John the Baptist's disciples. When Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? In other words, did you welcome him fully? Did you take him into you? And they answer, no, we haven't even heard that there is such a thing, that there is a Holy Spirit. So they were baptized in water, and Paul laid his hands on them, and in verse 6, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Thirdly, if Jesus needed to hear the affirming voice of God's love in a personal way, then that must be important for the, us as well. There are different ways God's voice of love is heard. The evangelical tradition says, read the Bible. That's how God speaks today, and many evangelicals have doubts about whether we can really trust ourselves to hear the voice of the Lord apart from Scripture. The charismatic tradition says, yes, read the word, but don't, and this is from Tertullian, an ancient scholar, don't chase the Holy Spirit exclusively into a book, the Bible. Interesting. Listen for God's voice. 
Expect that he'll speak to you intuitively, but be sure that whatever you hear lines up with scripture. And then the contemplative tradition says, be still. God will communicate his love to your soul in the silence. Words aren't really necessary. So whatever the tradition is that draws us, we want and need to hear the Lord's voice of love as Jesus heard the voice of the Father. Two of our other readings tonight give us insights into hearing God speak. Psalm 29, we read it together. Here the voice of the Lord is heard in creation, and it's loud and it's magnificent. And then if you remember, at the end of the psalm, we read, the Lord blesses his people with peace. God speaks in both ways, powerfully and tenderly. God spoke gently to Hagar, the outcast, and said, I am the God who sees you. He called quietly to Samuel as he slept in the tabernacle. Elijah looked for God in the wind and the earthquake and the fire, but God came to him, you know it, in a gentle whisper. God's voice can be heard forcefully, but when he speaks to individuals, his voice is often kind, affirming, peaceful. We can count on his speaking being appropriate to what each of us needs to hear. It may be how we perceive love when we're with a friend or a spouse or a grandchild. When I used to pick up Alina from school, she'd run out the front door of the school and run to me and hug me and then tuck her little hand into mine. No words were said. No words were needed. It was silence. It was love. It was a manifestation to me of God's love. And this brings us back to Jesus' baptism. The voice of the Father came from heaven saying, You are my son, chosen and marked by my love, pride of my life. Long before each of us were affirmed and praised or conversely wounded and rejected by mother, father, brother, sister, teacher, church, long before any of that happened, God has been speaking his love over you and over me, and he will go on speaking. Nothing will divert his love. It's certainly not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with chaos and noise and condemnation. But every time you listen to the voice that calls you the beloved, your desire to hear that voice will grow and your ability to believe it will increase. Like a thirsty person who finds a little puddle of water in the desert and then digs deeper to find the flowing river. How do we hear these words from God that go deep into our souls? I'd like to end with this quote again from N.T. Wright. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us. 
not as we are in ourselves, but as we are held in Christ Jesus. It sometimes seems impossible, especially to people who have never had this kind of support from earthly parents, but it's true. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear child. I am utterly delighted in you. Try reading that sentence slowly with your own name at the beginning and reflect quietly on God saying that to you, both at your baptism and every day of your life since then. You are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. Just close your eyes for a moment. Just imagine that God is looking directly at you and speaking your name with tenderness. And then speaking these words, you are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. I suggest that you try reading that sentence slowly, as we did tonight, with your own name at the beginning, and reflect quietly on God saying it to you. Thank you, Lord. Thanks be to God. I pray that each person in this room tonight will hear you call their name with love. Amen.